You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to be joined by two Washington Post reporters, Yasmin Abutaleb, a national reporter covering health policy, and her colleague and co-author, Damian Paletta, the Post's economics editor. And we're here to talk about their newly released volume, Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic that Changed History. Congratulations to you both, and thanks for making time to do this today and for the live event that we're going to do after this. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Yasmin, you mentioned to me in a phone conversation 15 months ago that you were working on a book in addition to all your other demanding duties. And uh, when I saw the Dan Diamond's piece in the post a few days before the book came out, I think I gave you a, I sent you an email and said, you know, you were indeed quite serious. Uh, so it's amazing to see this product, this considerable product, appear with such rocket speed. So congratulations. I'm going to start. I'm going to point the first question to you, uh, Yasmin. And this is a somewhat basic question. We're seeing a steady stream of books on the Trump administration and its response to the pandemic. Lawrence writes The Plague Year, Andy Slavitt's Preventable, Michael Lewis's The Premonition, and, and there's several others. I expect we'll see, we'll see a steady stream coming out. And, and so the natural question, you know, to start this conversation is, tell us what is it that distinguishes Nightmare Scenario from these other volumes that are quite impressive in their own respective ways? And you're striving to get beyond your daily reporting in this book. It's very clear you're trying to achieve something that rises above the daily reporting tasks that people will remember as the sort of big picture contribution that you're making. So tell us, tell us a bit about what really distinguishes this book and congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I remember having that conversation with you. And I think Damien and I weren't quite sure what shape the book would take or what it was going to look like or what story we were telling. But um, I am happy we got to this point. So I think there's there's room for a lot of these books because they're all kind of biting off a different piece of the story. Mm -hmm. For Damien and I, we wanted to focus very squarely on the political response from the White House out to the health agencies throughout the government and look Mm -hmm. at how all those pieces fit together because we were obviously covering it every day last year in our day jobs and trying to take off a piece of it every day. We would sometimes do these bigger takeouts, trying to stitch some things together, but we still... I don't think felt that we understood how everything mm-hmm. went together. We were covering a testing crisis in February through the summer, and then we were covering the vaccine race, and then we were covering the struggle to deal with a second wave, and then there was a point where Jared Kushner came in, and it just wasn't clear how all these things went together and how they impacted each other. So I think Damien and I saw this book as an opportunity to tell the first really comprehensive account of what the government's response looked like, how all these pieces fit together. I think we were shocked when we started constructing timelines and talking to people how much happened all at once in in a single day or a single week and trying to just unpack a lot of that. And I think 
one of the benefits we had was that because we did this book so quickly, we could talk to people when their memories were still really fresh. Yes. So we could reconstruct scenes while people could still remember them in a lot of detail. So that was one major motive in moving quickly to get this get the get the account together uh, as a kind of first cut. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Yasmin and I had the advantage compared to these other books of being inside the story from day one. So she was writing front page stories throughout and I was editing our economics coverage throughout. We knew all the key players. We were dealing with them in real time. And that allowed us to sense, you know, when things were going in different directions or when there was stress, when they were dealing with things. On any given day, there'd be a big news story, but there was something bigger happening. And so I think the our ability to be inside the story from day one really helped us write the most comprehensive account. I kept a daily file that I updated every day with like the five yeah. biggest news events on COVID in that day. And it grew to be several hundred pages. You know, we probably had to cut 80% of it out of the book because there was just too much. But we really chronicled this. I mean, we rode the bull essentially from January 2020 all the way through the election. We just felt like we had to be on top of it. And we couldn't. So that means that, you know, some of these other books might pick three or four events or main characters to kind of bring more to life. Whereas we, obviously, President Trump and Mike Pence are major characters, as is Burks and Fauci and others. But we really wanted to take these main characters and really dig into them as much as we could in a way that sets our book apart. Well, I do think, and we're going to talk about this, I think uh, there were a couple of things that jump jump out immediately, and, we're, and then we'll get into this in a moment. I mean, one is just the Trump leadership pattern, and I'll say a bit more about that, and I want to get you to tell me a bit more of how your, your thoughts are in there. Another was the doctors themselves and how they hung together, what how they endured untold abuse and threats and and never really became fully marginalized. Another thing we talked about was the damage to our health agencies, our health institutions, and our political culture that came out of this whole period. Before we jump into those things, I, I want to ask you, Damien, you're an economist. You're an economics editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're writing a political, predominantly a political analysis, but there's a there's a strong economic argument that runs through this. So give us a quick summation like why bring you in as the post economics editor and it's amazing that you were able you didn't know each other all that well and you were able yet to blend your skill set and your personalities and your different perspectives quite well it seems to me yeah but what's the economic rationale for bringing you in and what's the economic argument well i think part of the beauty of and not to flatter you i mean too much but part of the beauty of our partnership is that we we have such different vantage points that I think made this book really unique. Okay, so I had a lot of contacts and sourcing inside the White House and inside, you know, the economic brain trust of Washington. Yasmin had a lot of contacts inside the White House and inside the health policy brain trust. These are incredibly powerful forces in this book and in this crisis. So you have the and health often department. very much at odds with absolutely completely at odds. And the irony, the sad, tragic irony is that if they had been working more closely together, you know, perhaps a lot of the damage wouldn't have, have taken place. The idea was that we were either going to have a health response or an economic response. That was the idea within the White House. And so, you know, Burks and Fauci had a lot of influence initially, and then the economic folks came in and like wrested it all away from them until it was too late, right? Because they ended up almost destroying the economy by trying to reopen everything so quickly. So I think, you know, hopefully what I brought to this project was a sense of, 
the way the president thought about the economy, his obsession with the stock market, who he was talking to, who he was dismissing, and the things that he was focusing on and not focusing on. And so, for example, there's a section in our book, um, I think it's called Liberate, which is all about that push in April to reopen the state governments. And the whole argument was, you know, you're crushing small businesses. Who cares about the, the virus restrictions? We just have to get up and get going. And that was, you know, I think a huge inflection point in the response. And Dr. Fauci felt like that was when he realized, oh, my gosh, no one's listening to me. They're just going to do whatever the president says. Yeah, that's very vivid. I mean, that was the day that Deborah Burks was briefing on the reopening gates, right? Exactly. And and then goes home and 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 sees the president appealing to armed militias in Michigan to re to liberate Michigan and then on to two or three other states, which mother must have been rather shocking. Yasmin, let me ask you before we dive into some of the leadership issues and some of these other issues. How did you do this? I mean, you you had a, you talked to 180 people, hundreds and hundreds of actual interviews and hours of this. People had to trust you. They had to trust that you would preserve confidences that that and you needed them to be truthful with you. And you had to make some careful judgments of what was nonsense, what was spin, what was factually correct. You had to try to make sure that where you settled was going to be defensible over the long term. And that's a that's a really dip with something as crazy as this administration and this the complexity of everything, you face a huge challenge. Tell us how did you do this? And how did you get people to people couldn't talk to you in some cases until well after Trump had left the White House, right? Yeah, I love that question because it's something that Damien and I grappled with throughout this whole process. I think like Damien said earlier, one thing that worked in our advantage was that we were covering it day in and day out. And, you know, Damien had covered White House economics before um, this this whole crisis. And so he had those contacts. I've been covering HHS and the, the health agencies for three years before I was at the Post. I was, I was covering it at Reuters. And so I think, and then of course we were covering the pandemic day in and day out. So I had a lot of sources and as did Damien just throughout the crisis where we were trying to make sense of things as they were evolving. So I think that definitely helped us get a leg up. Like Damien had mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. we were talking to them day in and day out. We weren't new to a lot of these people. People saw our coverage. Um, you know, we, we clearly understood the crisis and the contours of it. And then of course it, it took some time to get some other people who normally wouldn't talk for the daily paper to agree to talk for the book. And I think especially by the end of the year when there were a number of missed opportunities that we document throughout the book to turn the response around, there were so many people who were legitimately traumatized by how this had all gone yes. and how many people had died. And they felt like it was so important to try to give as an accurate a perspective as possible on what had happened and why to make sure that someone reading this book 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now would not repeat the same mistakes that, th that they did. And some of them are obvious. And I think some of them are not quite as obvious. I think some of them happened a bit more insidiously yeah. where people thought they were doing the right yeah. thing, but they were really paving the way for more and more politicization. And then I think especially after the election, people weren't worried about their jobs so much anymore. Yeah. It was clear that a lot of people in the Trump administration were probably not going to get jobs anytime soon anyway. Yeah. So I think for some people, there also was a sense of there's not a whole lot to lose. And then, of course, to allude to one of the points you made earlier, there were a lot of people focused on protecting their own reputations and justifying yeah. their presence and why they stayed and why they made the decisions they did. So that, 
I think was a particular challenge. There, there were certain events we tried to recreate where we would get four different accounts of the same exact meeting or the same exact event or wildly varying accounts of someone's role. And we just had to sort through that. And that's why we ended up talking to so many people. We just talked to as many people as we possibly could to try to get as close to the truth as we could. Yeah, I mean, it's striking how much animosity and anxiety runs through this storyline, right? I mean, and that gets to the next topic that I want to focus on, which is the Trump leadership style. I mean, you document, I mean, this is really the heart of the book, right? It's it's this bullying, erratic style. It's this reliance on falsehoods and denials. It's the impulse to use the pandemic to divide, to you know create anger and division, and to allow no one to be in charge, which comes up over and over. Bullying, a figure, bullying, the term bullying appears probably two dozen times across the book. No one in charge is, is a theme that recurs. But it's like a form of, it, 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 was a, it was very much embedded in the political choices that Trump was making. And you very carefully document those critical moments when the decision was taken to abdicate responsibility, to not grab the opportunity or moment. Damien, tell us a bit about sort of what were you trying to convey about the core aspects of his leadership choices? Well, yeah, I mean, so this, the title of the book is Nightmare Scenario, and that's what this was. You know, it wasn't, obviously, having a respiratory virus that spreads from asymptomatic people is terrible, but doing it in an election year when you have the government split and the country split is just a total nightmare. And so what we wanted to do was not pull any punches. You know, some of these actions, quite frankly, were unforgivable. And the death toll was too high for us to try to be nice or, you know, too sympathetic to some of their situations. Yes, there was a fog of war. Yes, this is a virus no one had ever seen before. Yes, they, some people made really honest mistakes because they were doing the best they could. But some of the, the things that took place, the bullying and the undercutting and the kind of sophomoreish bad mouthing, I think, really did damage to the response. And it created this atmosphere in the country where no one knew who to trust. You know, they were ridiculing the doctors. They, even when maybe the political leaders did say something thoughtful, other people thought there was a, an ulterior motive. And we thought it was important for us to keep coming back to that to show this political influence and the strain on these decisions so Americans could understand everything that went into these decisions, whether it was about you know, a, a hydroxychloroquine or, you know, masks, like people need to know the whole backstory in order to understand what happened in 2020. What do you think were the three or four top line decisions that, as you look at the nightmare scenario, built that scenario? I think masks, like Damien said, was such an obvious one. We had so few tools to combat the pandemic, especially before the summer, before there were at least some drugs with a little bit of efficacy. And it's not easy. I think I, I didn't appreciate how difficult public health messaging is in the middle of an evolving crisis. But it was something that all the, the health and medical advisors had agreed on by the end of March, which, of course, that's a whole other issue of how long it took to get to that point, yeah. should be recommended. And the administration had decided it was going to recommend that people wear masks. And the president undercut that from the moment he announced it. And then, of course, it got worse. And that, I think, to us stood out. as That's why we dedicated a whole chapter to the mask debate, um, because that just stood out as something that 
really could have saved a lot of lives and it didn't cost a lot of money. People just had to be on the same page. There might've been some stumbles in getting there, but by April, there really was no excuse for the government to not be on the same page about masks and to send a really clear, unified message. And that decision on masking coincided with the decision to really kind of abdicate federal responsibility and kick the risk and decision power over to the states and put them into a a kind of hunger hunger game exactly for all yeah there was a real tension around that time on testing and on masks yeah. where the federal government the white house really didn't want to own the decision and the responsibility so you had the situation where hospitals were fighting with each other over masks you know they were bidding having bidding wars against each other which is not what you wanted and the same thing with testing the White House, the president didn't want to own it. Jared Kushner came in and tried to, you know, temporarily set something up, but that never got off the ground. And by the time they finally sorted it out, it was too late. And I think I think to that point, one of the other big failures was never doing a national testing or national right. supply plan. That was yeah. and that's like Damien said, the reason that states were bidding against each other and never had what they need. At one point, there actually were enough tests, but there weren't enough supplies to run them. Mm-hmm. And there are obviously stumbles. There's the CDC testing crisis, which is a whole other thing. I think that could have happened under any administration. But you know, the, the federal government's decision to not want to take ownership of these things, to not coordinate it, to not make clear leadership decisions, I think was, was tragic. You just saw 50 different responses throughout the year because there was no national leadership. You think the FDA was under orders not to, not to commercialize tests as a deliberate policy or I mean, when you look back at the at the testing catastrophe, which was really monumental and the first the first really monumental failure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we could have we could have corrected course even after the mishaps at CDC with the with the three elements of the test. I mean, which was unusual, but it had, stuff like that happens, right? But when you look back and you think how long it took to get a commercialized approach. It, it would, you know, it, on the surface, it just looks like this was a White House that did not want testing, mm-hmm. simply did not want to admit the possibility that there was a widespread uncontrolled transmission inside our country when we continued for six, eight weeks to pretend that we had closed our borders and, and it was somewhere else. I think the testing crisis and why it went awry evolved so much over time. I don't think the White House comprehended yet in February that you wouldn't want a lot of testing to not identify yeah. cases. I don't think that was the mindset quite yet. I think that really was a CDC and HHS failure. Yeah. And part of the problem there was that um, Alex Azar, the HHS secretary, was running the task force at that time. Yeah. And I don't think they appreciated the scale of the testing problem at the time. They were learning so much in real time. We have this scene in late February where Azar bangs his fist on the desk and says, right. what the hell is going on here? Why aren't the tests fixed? But there was such a reluctance to admit problems because people were just constantly worried about their job security. Alex Azar very much wanted to remain in charge of the task force. So there were communication issues. And then we have a scene where Steve Hahn, the then FDA commissioner, wants to reach out to commercial manufacturers in early February, but perceives a response he gets from HHS as telling him to stand down. And there's some disagreement about whether he was actually being told to, if that's how he interpreted it. But 
the bigger issue there was that to get the commercial manufacturers involved in the way you saw in South Korea, it had to come from HHS and the White House. The FDA honestly wasn't high up enough and doesn't have the authority to give them lots of money or guaranteed reimbursement to convince them to get involved. And they had been burned in during the SARS crisis because it didn't end up being as bad as feared. So that leadership had to come from even higher than the FDA to really get the commercial manufacturers involved in a serious way. In reading through your book, it seemed like when you got to key decision points, there was almost always something else that drove decisions than, yeah. than the pandemic itself. In other words, early on, it was impeachment, the China trade deal. Then it was the reopening of the economy. It was what's happening in Wall Street in the marketplace. Then it became the reelection campaign. That though, in terms of leadership choices and calculations, it seemed like that was the that was the the immediate impulse of Trump at all of these moments was to focus on something other than this, and by implication to downplay things or postpone action. Mm-hmm. So much space. I think one what we tried to do in the book is show readers a number of different moments in that year where things could have gone in a different direction. You know. There's a meeting in the Situation Room where Alex Azar, you know, models these masks they hadn't purchased, and people start teasing him. Yeah. They shelved the whole thing. Imagine if they had sent two masks to every American, and the president had modeled it, and it was like kind of a normalized thing for everybody. You know, imagine if um, the president had kind of had a change of heart when he emerged from the hospital right. and said, "Whoa, this is no joke. You know, let's buckle down." And so I think you know, there's on so many occasions. You're right. Things broke in the direction of the re-election, focusing on the re-election campaign, even though I think in retrospect, buckling down on the virus would have helped the re-election. But that kind of on the near-term instant gratification idea, you know, there was a scene in the Oval Office when um, his camp- Trump's campaign advisors advised him that Republicans actually do support the idea of a mask mandate. It's not a big, you know, poison pill like you think. And Mark Meadows said, no, 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 the base will revolt. And the president agreed with him. There were so many moments like that where... Imagine what would have been different last year. Imagine how many lives could have been saved if they just would have taken a different approach. Now, some of this gets back to what was happening in the inner circle. In other words, there was a toxicity and dysfunctionality deeply embedded within the White House. And it wasn't simply President Trump. But it, but the picture you paint is of an inner circle of Mark Meadows, Mark Short, Alex Azar, Kushner, that are all kind of reinforcing these bad choices to varying degrees and creating, you know, so, and then those outside, the Laura Ingrahams, Fox News, amplifying all of this so that it's not just a, a quiet decision, set of decisions that are being made. It's, it's ones that set off an extraordinary amount of animosity and reaction, which gets me to the doctors. The doctors are there mm-hmm. trying to make their case. You can, you could say, well, they were less sensitive than perhaps they could have been to the economic dimensions and to the suffering and, and, and anxiety and insecurity that the lockdown caused. And, and it, you know, we did have this staggering economic decline at a, at a precipitous, absolutely precipitous, shocking speed and velocity. But the, the portrait that you make, the doctors of Tony Fauci, Deborah Burks, Robert Redfield, Stephen Hahn, it's pretty compassionate and sympathetic, I think. It's mixed. You, you don't pull your punches in describing errors in judgment or moments that were less than endearing 
or put reputations at risk. But you're pretty admiring, I think, of the fact that these this group hung together despite their rivalries and resentments and, and despite the incredible abuse and personal attacks and, and threats upon themselves and their families that came with the territory increasing in time. I mean, when you look back on this, it's astonishing to me in two respects. One, that this president didn't carry out a, a Saturday night massacre. So why, why not? Mm-hmm. You know, why didn't he, he, he was capable of massacring lots of other people in his administration, but he didn't do that in this instance. And then secondly, these folks refused to give up and they would be marginalized and then they'd come back. I mean, one of your late stories is, you know, uh, Fauci and Burt's coming back and Gil going into the situation room and just at late in the game laying out all a state by state sort of blast of the truth against all expectations of what was going to happen. People thought they were they were no longer of any import. So say a bit, maybe Yasmin, you can start. Say a bit about how you, the two of you, were thinking about this very complicated and sensitive issue of how do we understand and make sense of what the doctors did and how they, the choices they made, and, and how are we to see that and understand that? Yeah, I want to hear what Damien has to say about this too, but... You mentioned the bullying and intimidation earlier, and I actually remember this phone call Damien and I had in the middle of the reporting process when we were on leave, and we had collected yet another anecdote of someone bullying one of the doctors. It might have been Mark Meadows, because there were a number of calls we documented where he's calling and berating them to, to do what he wants or what he thinks the president wants, and then telling them to clean out their desk if he doesn't do it, if they don't do it. And that's why we made sure we we sort of wove that throughout the book because it was such a hallmark of the response. And I think with the doctors, when we really dug into their backstories, into the experiences that shaped them, especially Burks, Fauci, and Redfield, who all came up together during the AIDS crisis, I think we came away thinking that these were people who wanted to do the right thing. They're, of course, human and they were flawed. And some of them made bad decisions that that were damaging to the response. But I think we viewed them more as miscalculations or not being strong enough sometimes to stand up to the pressure. And I think one of the benefits of getting to report this book together was we could really come away understanding the amount of pressure they were under that I don't think you always appreciate when you're reporting it day to day. Because when you're reporting it day to day, you're watching the press briefings and you're like, why would they say that? That's just not true. What would compel them to say that? And I think when you understand a bit more about the environment they were operating in, the the not only the, the threats from the administration they were getting, but the personal threats they were getting as well, all the competing sort of factors that they had to weigh when they were trying yeah. to make certain decisions. I think we wanted to portray that and let readers decide you, how how they came out of this and, and how they should be judged. But I think we felt like the situation was much more difficult and pressure-laden than we had appreciated even while we were covering it last year. Well, I think you did a very full and complete and fair portrait. And that's one of the most, I mean, I really like this book in many ways, but that was one of the most powerful and compelling dimensions of it. And I like your reference to the HIV AIDS because most people don't understand that we lived through 
the initial 14 or 15 years of the HIV pandemic was a year, years of terror mm -hmm. with no tools, no vaccine, no cure, shitty tools until we got to ARTs. And, and the death rate was just horrendous. The death rate was the yeah, leading cause of death for a long time. And, and Tony Fauci was, uh, and, and Robert Redfield and then Deborah Burks came into to Fauci's orbit and um, slightly later, but these three have had remarkable continuity and longevity in the HIV fight. And the HIV fight was not without its series of crises and political fights and abuse. So they were not naive. I don't think they, <laughs> I don't think they anticipated the, the abuse that they, they ever imagined they would be subject to, they and their family members, death threats and 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 having security contingents, but nonetheless, they were pretty battle tested, mm -hmm. and they had a certain faith and confidence that the the quality of what they were putting together would sway people. Sometimes it didn't didn't, but overall, they never gave up. Damien, you're how did you how did you see these doctors yourself? So I think Burks and Fauci will, will probably end up being two of the most important government figures of the century. And I think they'll be studied in 100 years, honestly. And I hope that they're studied in our book in 100 years, you know, because I think what we tried to do was really explain their backstory and how they got, you know, from their kind of childhood and education yeah. to this moment. And, you know, I, one of my most moving interviews for this book was with Sean Doolittle, the pitcher for the Washington Nationals. Yeah. And he told me about the event when Fauci threw the opening day pitch. And what struck, and he just had a photographic memory of the whole day. It was a Sean did. Yeah, it was an astounding yeah. interview. He was an amazing guy. Yeah. And so he told me when he went to meet Fauci on the, the diamond before yeah. the pitch, Fauci had his mask on, and he could almost see the fear in Fauci's eyes. You know, he could see the stress. Yeah. And it just reinforced for us, like, there was so much going on with these doctors that no one knew about. You know, they were on TV. They would make their remarks. They would kind of stand behind the president when he talked and sometimes stifle a, you know, groan or something. But there was so much more to them. They were under so much pressure. You know, these are people who spent their whole lives trying to save lives. And they, they, these, are, these people, Dr. Burks and Fauci, they've dealt with politics before. You know, they're actually pretty savvy. But this was so much bigger than anything they had anticipated. And so I think we felt like we really needed to bring them to life. And whether, you know, we think, we talked about this a lot, Burks is one of the most complicated figures either of us have ever covered in our careers. I mean, she's incredibly private. You know, she made mistakes. She will never admit she made mistakes. She did not get the benefit of the doubt. Some people revile her to this day for not tackling the no small Trump. level of misogyny. Absolutely. In much of that. Absolutely. Venom that was directed at her. Yeah. And so, you know, she, I think her story deserves to be understood, but people, whether people agree with her or not, you know, who knows? But I think seeing things from her vantage point, I think is important to understand what happened. I just want to mention that the, the morning after the baseball pitch, um, you know, where you, as you tell, as you as you recount, you know, Tony Fauci had gone and practiced his pitching. He was very athletic in his youth, still a runner and a walker, and he had uh, been practicing his pitching and had thrown out his had thrown out his shoulder. So then the ball just went the wrong direction, mm -hmm. right? And 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 it was. It was. I think, he, I think he found that utterly exasperating. But the next morning, we did a, a, a live cast, hour-long conversation. 
about the response and what was happening in the response. And I, I just, you know, I made a kind of passing reference to the pitch. I didn't want to dwell on it. Um, and he just looked at me like, dear Lord. How dare you? No, no, it was more like, dear Lord, everything's going wrong here. (laughs) I can't even throw the ball straight, you know? It was a kind of moment of, cut me a break, you know? God, cut me a break, will you? So how do you explain that there was no Saturday Night Massacre? Well, I think this is a big part of why the doctors make the pact that we report on, yeah. where Burks, Redfield, and Hahn say, if one of them gets fired, the other two will resign. I think the the reason there wasn't a Saturday Night Massacre was actually pretty clear after the weekend Alex Azar didn't get fired in April, where you know we had reported, other outlets had reported that he could potentially be out by the end of the weekend. And in reporting the book, we found that was very much true. There were serious discussions. They were talking about yeah. replacements. Um, and there had been a couple of rounds of whether Alex Azar would get fired even before the pandemic. And the vice president steps in and says, you know, you can't get rid of him right now. We're six months from an election. He's the health and human services secretary. And I think such a big part of it, despite the president's immense frustration with the health and medical advisors, was that he was so determined to prove that there was nothing wrong with the crisis, that they had it under control, that the pandemic was under control, and firing one of your top health officials completely undercut that message because it sent a signal that something was not going well and something needed to be fixed, and he was acutely sensitive to that perception. You couldn't be telling the public, on the one hand, it's going to go away, it's going to be fine, don't worry about it, don't let it dominate your life. On the other hand, fire a top health advisor because that signals something is not going So you well. could exhort your followers to, to to issue death threats against them, but you couldn't fire them. Apparently not. It's, it's a, a, bizarre, a, a bizarre and peculiar reality that you would... I mean, because Trump would go out and deliberately sig- send signals about... It's time to step up the hatred against Fauci yeah. or Burks. Mm-hmm. And man, it would be like that, instantaneous. Well, and it's interesting. On Steve Hahn at the FDA, they were, the White House was in kind of a pickle because they needed him to approve right. the vaccines. And so firing him could lead a lot of people to think, well, if I'm not going to listen to anything the FDA says now. It's just going to be a political decision and no one will get the vaccine. Yeah. So Han, even though he was just pummeled for the second half of the year. He recovered. He recovered, and yeah. And he stood his ground. Right. He did, he, learned, I mean, he had industry behind him, too. He learned a really, really hard lesson yeah. that I think stiffened his spine right yeah. before they had to make a decision on the vaccine. And this was on the... Uh, plasma, convalescent plasma, and hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, I think even more so convalescent plasma just because of the way it had all unfolded. And Peter Marks, who's the the top vaccine regulator, told Han after that whole incident, this is a dress rehearsal for the vaccine. Yes. And I think that seemed to really resonate with him. Yeah. Let's cover a couple quick things here uh, before we run out of time. Pence. Pence plays a very important role and a very complicated role how do we make sense of him, in your view? What does this book leave us with? Great question. He, you know, I think the doctors felt like he listened to them, and they had a lot of admiration for him. Um, the final scene in the book is Burke's pleading with Pence. You know, the election's over. You have to tell people to wear a mask. They felt like 
he at least would listen to them and consider their ideas. He did shuttle works around the country to try to help right. her get to the states. When she decided to scoot, scoot out of town and mm-hmm. yeah. visit the 44 governors right. and states. But when push came to shove, he really didn't do much to stand up to the president on the response. You know, And I think that might end up being his legacy. He did bring people together. He did try to run an orderly process, but he never really put his foot down with President Trump. And I think that's what ended up, you know, the whole thing with the masks and the president just refused to accept that masks were important. P- Pence probably could have done more to have an influence on that. Yes, me, any thoughts on Pence? I, I agree with everything Damien said. Yeah. Um, I think we also still didn't fully understand his role and what his motivations were in the response. I think on the one hand, he did care what the doctors had to say and he would be genuinely concerned about the course the outbreak was taking and the impact on the country. But on the other hand, at the end of the day, his loyalty was to the president and he was never going to do anything to threaten that. So he provided a sympathetic ear, but I think like Damien said, was never going to do anything that was against what the president wanted to do. You document quite powerfully and in considerable detail the attacks on CDC and FDA. So it raises the, the question of how deep and lasting was the damage. What do you think, Yasmin? I think it's it's going to take a long time to recover from that. I think you see the CDC continuing to stumble right now, even yeah. under a new administration. Yeah. People still questioning their decisions. And I think even more damaging is the lack of trust and in both in, and confidence. Yeah. Among the American people. Absolutely. I think we see it with vaccine hesitancy. You saw trust in a coronavirus vaccine plummet over the course of the year. And yeah. There's always a degree of vaccine hesitancy, but I would be curious to understand how much of it is because of how political the process was. Um, And I think with the CDC, it's exposed a lot of the flaws in the agency that maybe will be good in the end. Maybe it will create a serious discussion about what needs to be reformed there and how you prevent that kind of thing from happening again. But I think the damage to the CDC especially is long lasting and going to take a really long time to recover from. I think it's going to take a long time for people to trust their guidance and the process and whether they should listen to its advice. I, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen a, a ton of progress, even, you know, a, a few months into a new administration. Yeah. I mean, it seemed that CDC was especially vulnerable to these assaults, direct assaults coming from the White House. Then they made a series of unforced errors that mm-hmm. were very damaging to their image. And then the whole crisis exposed the shambolic fragility of our public health system. I mean, the the data management, the understaffed. I mean, they serve those 3,500 public health authorities that are underfinanced, understaffed, the data systems. I mean, it just revealed this structural, systemic problems that were very deep and we just kind of pasted over them. So yeah, I, I, I think that it's really going to be a big path back. What about FDA then? What do you think? Well, I think, I mean, the FDA did manage to get through with the, the vaccine approvals, I think. I mean, it was amazing how many people did end up getting the vaccine, I suppose, when you consider what was happening. But now we've definitely hit a wall. And I think part of it is because these these people who don't feel comfortable getting vaccines don't trust the process. Yeah. And, you know, that's discouraging. And, you know, I think... So you would tie together 
the attacks upon the FDA and the erosion of public trust and confidence to today, where we've got 30% of our Absolutely, yeah. So you draw a direct connection. I think so. I mean, I think the fact that these agencies were in the political crossfire so much uh, made it impossible, makes it impossible now for many Americans to separate out what they do scientifically. And, you know, I think when you look at the legacy of this pandemic, obviously 600,000 deaths is an incredible tragedy that the country will always have to grapple with. But there's going to be another pandemic at some point, right? And if people don't trust the CDC and FDA, you know, heaven help us for what the response will be like. If these agencies can't rebuild their reputation, which is going to take a lot of work from both parties, then we're going to be in a much worse situation than we were this time. Okay. Let's close. We All of these podcasts, we ask our guests to tell us where you find the most optimism and hope looking ahead. I mean, you've told a brutally honest and tough and very complicated story, and congratulations to you. I think you've done a big service to all of us in pulling together this into a, comprehens- into a comprehensible or intelligible narrative. It's painful to go back over it because we all lived it, right? You're writing something which is like, guess what you did the last year? <laughs> which was lived through all of this, right? It's one of those weird experiences of reading this book. But where, what, Yasmin, where, where do you have the greatest hope? Where do you find the greatest hope and optimism? I think we talked to a lot of people who wanted to help us tell the story because they really wanted there to be lessons learned from this. And I think the discussions that we're having now that you alluded to about product underfunding in public health, data management. These are not things that we talk about normally unless you're in that sort of small public health, health policy world. And I think it's because none of the general public couldn't appreciate how devastating it would be if a crisis did hit. You know, these things sound like wonky bureaucratic things that aren't very interesting, but I am optimistic it'll open a discussion about what needs to change at the CDC, at the FDA, mm-hmm. in the nation's public health infrastructure. You know, maybe there will be more serious discussions about funding. It's, there's always, of course, a short attention span. You can see it now in HHS yeah. moving COVID funds elsewhere. Yeah. But I do hope that there there is a serious desire to reflect for some time and to address some of these issues that, like you said, there have just been kind of band-aids put over. And there are a lot of people who see the people involved, I think, who feel a sense of responsibility to help the country learn from this tragedy to try to make sure the next time goes a little bit better. Thank you. Damien, you get the last word. Yeah, I would say, you know, my optimism is that, you know, one of the tragic lessons of this crisis was the, the lack of honesty, you know. And yes, there were mistakes made that were not intended to be dishonest about masks. There was confusion about whether it worked, but there was a lot of misinformation. The virus will go away when it gets warmer. You know, this is all, this is nothing worse than the flu. And so I think what we come out of this knowing that honesty works, you know, there was a point in late March when the president's approval ratings were at the highest point ever. And he was kind of leveling with the American people. We're going to be in for a tough few weeks. You know, Americans are willing to, kind of follow the leader during tough times. And so I hope, you know, that we come out of this with an appreciation for that kind of truth. You know, truth matters, truth wins. And so I hope that that that's kind of the approach going forward. Well, thank you both for taking so much time and congratulations. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver 
and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.